on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUP LP Hillsborough. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, less human than human. Painter, artist, comic book fan Alex Ross is with us. Welcome. to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. This is Robert Malazzo of the Modern School of Film. Thrilled to be with you every Friday, 2 p.m. live on WHUPLP Hillsborough. We're also evergreen on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social media at M. S F Murmur. That's uh, Twitter, Instagram, and all those plug uglies like that. And we also have the Modern School Film website, modernschoolfilm.com. Modern School Film will be on the road. May 10th will be in Cambridge slash Boston at the Coolidge Corner Theater with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. talking movies at the Coolidge Corner Theater. Come see us. Come say hi. If you listen to us every week on Murmur, and you go to these events, come say hi. I'd love to hear that you're hearing us. We'll also be at the Onion Comedy Festival at the end of May, May 31st, with Christopher Guest talking movies. But here every week with you, WHUP and various and sundry ventricles of media we cover. We've actually, uh, today's guest is Alex Ross. Uh, Alex uh, and I did a chat in Chicago at a at a arts conference of sorts called the Lake Effects. We did it last week and we'll play you the live. Uh, so what you're gonna hear is live from last week. It's We did it in a room full, really beautiful room full of people. I don't know if the people were beautiful. I'm certainly not beautiful, but the room was spectacular and the talk was candid. Uh, Alex Ross, Alex Ross has been compared in the comics universe f- to everyone from uh, Michelangelo, I think the, uh, the Daily Beast called him the Michelangelo of comics. Uh, Norman Rockwell Museum has hosted his works. He's also, uh, which is really interesting if you look at Alex Ross's work, 
uh, he cites Salvador Dali as an influence. Anyway, we're, he and I are going to talk about comic nation or cine comic nation. You know, we're in this. You know, this just in: um, comic book movies, superhero movies rule the screens of all sizes, of all girths, uh, small and large. So I wanted to go to Alex and talk to him. We did a talk called "The State of the Art." You're going to hear uh, that today on Murmur. Trying to retrofit or at least retrace how we got to this point in uh, 2017. But we've been at this point for a while where comic book heroes are silver screen heroes. Imagine Humphrey Bogart as a superhero. That would be cool. I, I totally see him as uh, Rorschach, uh, Watchman. With all due respect to Jackie Earl, Earl Haley, however, uh, it's interesting. You know, we've talked a lot about on on Murmur about can you be a creator and be a fan, and and I think the answer or a fan first then a creator, and I think the the answer seems to be occasionally more occasionally than not. Yes, you can. We just had Thurston Moore in the show. Alex Ross today started as a comic book fan. He still goes to comic book stores in Chicago and buys comic books. So he's a fan. Can you, however, be a fan and an audience member when this religion you practice called comic books has morphed into comic book cinema? And what's interesting about that for many years, and, and I put myself in this trough, I wanted a great comic book film. And for many years, my brother and I, who's a bigger comic book admirer and connoisseur than I am, we would kind of fantasize, oh, Batman would be a great comic, or, you know, I was a big Daredevil fan. Oh, Daredevil would be a great comic, very cinematic. And now, you know, be careful what you wish for. But the the truth of this, the, the truth serum of this is, you know, if you really want to look at Batman 1989, when studios and actors like Jack Nicholson said, oh, I can make money off this thing. Okay, ho-ho, that was the uh, clarion call for studios to turn comic book properties into movie properties. Now, to dial that back a little bit, it's funny, comic book um, stories and heroes and heroines, less frequently heroines, um, were often a TV content. Where there, were, there were shows in the 70s and 80s. You know, Wonder Woman was in the 80s. Spider-Man was on The Electric Company. Um, There's also a Doctor Strange TV show, I think in the early 80s, um, Incredible Hulk, Batman of the 60s, Legion. Uh, so there were attempts, and, and the small screen took it on at much lower budgetary levels. But then when the studios realized, you know, we could take this and really put steroids, pump it full of steroids and, and make a lot of money. So they've done that, right? Uh What's what's interesting, you know, us comic book fans for the generations, may, I don't know. You know, I do a lot of uh, events in comic book conventions, movie events, and I, I don't know. I think comic book fans, now that I'm thinking this out loud with all of you, um, I think comic book fans are pretty pleased. Uh, I don't know if comic creators are pleased, and that's why I wanted to bring in Alex and we do bring into Murmur a lot of comic book authors, artists, writers uh, to to reflect this. We've had Frank Miller on the show, Rick Remender, Matt Fraction, Kelly Sue DeConnick, and we'll have more. 
as we go, because the comic book artists are some of the biggest brains I know. So I don't know. I think there is a melancholia to their response to uh, probably a greater melancholia in their response to the realities of superhero movies and comic book mirrors movies. And we could parse that because there are movies that are sourced from comics but are not superhero based. To wit, there are superhero films that are not sourced from comics. And Alex is going to touch on a few of his favorites today to define, you know, superhero. But I have noticed most consistently that the creators are the ones, and maybe because there's there's a business piece, you know, it's like musicians being more melancholy about I, iTunes or Apple, the Apple Music Store than Apple or computer geeks and fans. So, you know, it's that author's perspective. It's the blood, sweat, and tears perspective. It's the ramen profitability perspective. You know, these are the folks who were doing it when all they were doing was trying to feed themselves and keep their lights on. You know, that term ramen profitability, you're, you're raising money simply to feed yourself, ramen noodle style. So maybe there is a, it's not an ax to grind, but maybe there's a different nostalgia associated with this turn. I'm a slightly older fan than probably the Comic-Con nation, but I like going to the Comic-Cons because the fans are inspiring. Many save money all year to go, and I have my own mixed feelings about the comic book convention scene and circuit, and Alex does too, perhaps, but I'm never at a loss for sourcing inspiration from the fans because I think movie fans you know, the movie fans of the 70s and 80s and the 90s even, when I was a ravenous fan or a different fan of movies than I am now, you know, the comic book fans now have that je ne sais quoi. They have that ethos. They have that energy. They love comics. They wait, you know, for comic books. It's no longer on a Tuesday. It's every day, you know. But again, there is a there are, you know, lost in translation issues. And certain creators are, are much more... Um, say draconian but they are they have a certain expectation of how the heroes should be translated to the screen some have less of an attachment to that translation i started off having a touchier response to the translation i don't anymore because i don't watch movies or tv in the same way when i do watch them so my translation issues are very different than creators so i like to always have creators in to reflect on how they see film and TV content with a descendancy from with its DNA and in, in their work. Alex is a traditionalist. He started as a, you know, a graphic artist, a painter. Uh, he would draw what he saw on TV. So I knew coming in that Alex would be about as close as you would get to a traditionalist in this way. So I knew he would have a strong response to it. But rather than go through title by title and have us wing beanbags at them, I wanted him to look at, I asked him to look at the org chart of how we went from, you know, let's say early 80s, maybe even before that, in graphic, the graphic comic medium, heavy metal, epic magazine, to the Avengers now. I think you're going to be excited by what you hear I know why I was. Uh, he has a big brain, 
and we all know what people with big what people with big brains can do, don't we? Now this. Sit down. I want to show you something. This was a test campaign used in 1947 to market a new product. The product was a drug, a tranquilizer called ephemeral. It was aimed at pregnant women. If it had worked, it would have been marketed all over North America. But the campaign failed, and the drug failed, because it had a side effect on the unborn children, an invisible side effect. It created scanners. Yes. The man who invented ephemeral was very excited by this weird mutation it caused. And so was Consec. They offered to finance his experiments. So he sold him his company and himself. And that man was Dr. Ruth. That was Daddy. Now I said that the side effects of ephemeral were invisible, but that's not completely true. Daddy could see them. He could see them in us. He had given the prototype of ephemeral to his pregnant wife, our mother, four years before it hit the market, and then again a year later. His children turned out to be difficult until he realized that the only thing that would calm them down was his drug, ephemeral. That's why we're older than all the others. Not only older, more powerful. The rest of them, they're nothing compared to us. Then what did you need Keller for? Consec had hardware. It had contacts. Keller could see the future. The future? You murdered the future. That's negative, Cam. Defeatist. Disappoints me to hear you talk that way. You're starting to sound like them. There's a whole generation of scanner soldiers just a few months away from being born. We'll find them. Train them to be like us, not like Obers and their band of cripples. We'll bring the world of normals to their knees. Rule an empire so brilliant, so glorious, will be the envy of the whole planet. You sound just like him, like Ruth. No, not like him. Like Rack! Daryl Rack! No, like him. It's as though he's been reincarnated in you. You're not listening to me. You're not cooperating, Cam. You're not cooperating with me at all. I've been counting on you for years, Cameron. Tell me you're not going to betray me like all the rest. Tell me you're not. No! Me. Paint a man. 
When we look at where we are now as a film culture and as a TV culture, where everything you turn on or pay money to see while you're eating popcorn has a costume around it, uh, it's time to talk to someone who knows something about costumes and reality and comics and art and a little bit about Superman himself. Please welcome to the Modern School Film, simulcast on Murmur Radio, Mr. Alex Ross. And you wondered if anyone was going to show. I did wonder, yes. <laughs> I want to thank you because I know uh, you're probably invited to, to, you know, everything from lunch to bar mitzvahs to comic <laughs> conventions on a daily basis. So I have not been invited to a bar mitzvah yet. Well, be careful what you don't wish for. Um, <laughs> thank you for being here, man. It's, thank it's you for a, having it's me. It's a real honor. You, your work. What I love about your work, just to set the table a little bit, and we're going to really talk about how did we get here, not literally here in this room, but how did we get into a motion-based culture that, uh, it's, almost, it's not a worship, but really, you know, everything from cannibalization to worshiping of, of comic-rooted work, comic-rooted figures, protagonists. But I want to start some, with something very simply, and it's, it's really what inspires me the most about you. You started as a fan. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important distinction. Film and comics, you can be a fan before you do it. Talk about some of your earliest moments of loving comics. I know your mom introduced you to comics as a, as a young boy. Well, first you kind of connect the characters to the comics. And so when I was seeing Spider-Man on television, which uh, some of you might remember a show called The Electric Company, and uh, wonderfully, they had a guy wearing a full Spider-Man costume who would act out these short, silly stories. but. Um, it was completely magical to me. I was taken in by that and wanted to dress as the character as well as draw the character. So uh, seeing my interest in that particularly prompted my mother to say, well, let's get him the comic book that this is based on. And there I was off and running. Yeah. Uh, your, and your mom was an artist. Yes. What was her artistic tradition? Was she an illustrator, a painter, a graphic artist? What, what was her distinction? Well. Uh, she went into uh, fashion illustration and uh, did a lot of um, traditional illustration kind of stuff here in Chicago. Uh, she went to the same art school that I did, which is the American Academy of Art. And um, so there's like 40 years difference between the two of us going there. But uh, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's the, still the same school uh, now that as when I went there and with some of the same teachers. But uh, I got to share the same education with her. And it was easy to be supported in my household because I had this like interest with a parent who wasn't doing it when I was growing up. She wasn't uh, working when I was a young child, but there was always a sense of understanding what I was after. Yeah. So nothing about my passion for comic books or drawing all the time was seen as an oddity. So um, it's a fortunate thing if you can have that kind of support I was, for parents. You read my question a little bit. Do you think it's overstated the importance of having a family that understands at least the vocabulary you're speaking. You know, the, the yeah. kind of professional, personal 
how much, you can't quantify it, but when you hear someone who doesn't have that, does your, does it kind of heart, does your heart break a little bit? Oh yeah, 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 I know. It can hold people back from realizing greater potential yeah. if they don't have either opportunity or support. Encouragement is massive, and the thing is, it's, it matters your whole life long. It doesn't matter just that I had encouragement back then. If I'm working for a publisher and I feel like my work is kind of not really being appreciated, yeah. it impacts the way that your flow is, because to people like me, as you said, came from being a fan first, I'm still a fan. I'm yeah. still a regular reader. I still right. spend a lot of money on this habit, you know? Um, <laughs> And that laughter was funny. It's like, oh, it's, <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you're into it, you know it's a money suck. So, um, but, you know, when you don't have uh, a connection of feeling like the work you're doing is either reaching an audience or is appreciated by the people you're working with, or, or the opposite, it's very appreciated, that really fills you up, that makes you more productive and happier to produce, so. Yeah, it's also interesting, you know, flash forward to you being someone who is an artist of record, not to sound too poetic, it can be a lonely process. So having oh, yeah. that mirror, for lack of a better term, maybe, you know, even someone yeah. to give you, you know, someone in your life to read something you've written or see something you've, you're playing with is important. Yeah. Even if it's not family, blood relation, to have a mirror or a reflective surface. In, in every way, uh, using your artwork to tell stories is a form of communication. I would argue that putting any kind of image together that you're trying to share with other people is a form of speaking to them. Right. You want to make a piece of art that other people can appreciate, that maybe those are people you'll never even meet, it's still you communicating an idea, a feeling, a context, a something. And in the course of comic books, that's full storylines. And it isn't just impersonal work, it can be very personalized to something you wanted to say about life, about morality, or just, hey, I really love this character. Those are all positive emotions yeah. that you can express and connect with an audience with, which is the same thing with the medium of film, communicating an idea. Yeah. When did you say, oh, I actually am I'm a fan, but I want to say this now. I want to repurpose my intention and actually say something of purpose. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And as being an advocate, I wanted to... Uh, get more and more people interested in reading comics. I wanted comics to be as accepted as it seems like they are now, which is only partially true. It's the characters are accepted yeah. on the grand stage, which is why we're here to talk about the film application of them, because comics still smell, sell, <laughs> and they smell, um, they still sell a very small That's gonna amount. be all over the internet, yeah. you realize that now. Alex Ross says comics smell. Well, they, they can literally smell, <laughs> yes. you know, depending on what area you got them in. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, comics is still a minuscule uh, medium, but it has an enormous footprint. There's like up to five different conventions a month. Incredible. And you figure like, well, there's somebody making money off this thing, not necessarily the publishers, <laughs> but there's, there's generated uh, enthusiasm for this stuff. Yeah. And of course, the application into merchandise and other media and to the, the toys that your kids might have or yeah. any of this other stuff that's reaching people is the dream that people like me have always had, yeah. is wanting to reach out more. And I'd love for it to be more connected to the sorts of storytelling in what's, what's unique to comics in a way is you can have the process come down to a small set of hands, you know, a writer, an artist, inker, or even just one person doing all the craft themselves and then that person communicating a simple idea to a broad number of people. And you don't necessarily have that. You can't have a film right. where it's directed, lit, 
acted by all the same person. You're going to have to share. You do. You can, but it becomes medium. kryptonite. So to, to use a metaphor, you know, it becomes this person. It, be, it becomes a suspicion. Why are they doing it all themselves? You know, in film, in a sense. <laughs> One of your first comic endeavors was doing Terminator. It was was around your advertising days. Correct? That was when I had only been working for maybe six months, and I got a freelance job for, an, again, a comic company here in Chicago. And um, they, uh, since I tried to get in with them, they answered that with, okay, here, here's this job. And I wasn't necessarily, I was a fan of the movie Terminator, and this is before the sequel had come out. But I thought, well, I'd rather do, you know, superheroes or whatever, but I realized I also wanted to be published right away. Right. I was young and I wanted that sort of on my resume as this grand accomplishment of he started so young so that 30 years later I could claim it. But, uh, and it just about killed me because you can't <laughs> do two jobs at once. I had a nine to five job doing storyboards and then I was coming home every evening and drawing for another seven hours in the evening and barely producing something that looked sort of quasi-painted. It was, it was more colored pencil than, than paint, but um, at least achieved that goal of saying I jumped right in and then you know, hopefully made better work with other gigs afterwards. I do meet a number of famous people who are, and this is true for a lot of rock stars and a lot of people who played a famous character in a movie or TV show, that what thing they did in their mid-20s is what they're always living in the shadow of. Right. I'm actually one of those people too, because the work I did in my mid-20s on the two different series I did for Marvel and DC, um, they're what basically is my calling card still today. Anything I've done since then doesn't really compete. It doesn't matter if it might be graphically more competitive or, or it might have improved in various ways. The impact I made from things I did when I was 24 and I was 26 um, is, I'm lucky that I have anything anybody cares about, but I'm still sort of in that shadow. Has it fueled you or has it led to a kind of callous to your history? I mean, these two works, which were kind of big deals, Marvels and Kingdom Come, are you sick of talking about them? No, I'm sick? never sick of talking about them. I'm proud of them. I like them. I, I wish, you know, you can always look back at your old work and wish you could improve it and see the faults within it. But um, I, uh, I don't necessarily think, well, I've got this better thing that's so much better than that, I wish I could get you more interested in. In some ways, I didn't want those works to be things that I had somehow completely obliterated from people's memory. Right. I wanted people to appreciate them for time, and it just means that, you know, I can always kind of be competing with myself in the way that that made a, foot, a big footprint in my history that um, I'm either competing with or I'm just adding more to it. The term that comes up a lot with you is this idea of painted comics. Define that term, painted comics. Painted comics would apply to uh, anything where the artist is elaborating the form as fully as they could possibly imagine. And it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, physical paint, it could be digital paint. It just mattered that you rendered the storytelling out as far as you could take it, which usually means with a lot of form, tone, and um, lighting. And, and so again, in the tools that I've used, as uh, I use a watercolor gouache 
as the basis for my work, and it's been the same way for 30 years with me. I started to learn a bit of it in school, and then once I went to art school, it was determined, yes, this is the thing I will do. Everything I'll ever illustrate will be painted. Yeah. Um, so these things started to really coalesce in that time period for me. And this is the late 80s I'm talking about. Marvel started to do some painted comic series, like one called Moonshadow. Yeah. Had a huge impression on me as a kid. I thought like, wow, every page of it is painted. I want to do this now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But there was stuff going all the way back to the 70s that would be examples like uh, Richard Corbin's work. Uh, things was, he did with was the character often Den. In, often in heavy metal, Corbin. Yes, yes. What I remember about heavy metal is they used to do interviews with filmmakers, they, like Roger Corman and Fellini uh, uh, were interviewed. So they really were kind of a multi-dimensional, incredible. Actually, a name I should always m mention in the terms of the history of painted comics is Bill Sienkiewicz because it wasn't just that he was a celebrated painter, but he was also doing it within the mainstream of comics. Yeah. Whereas Moonshadow and many other things like Richard Corbin's work were always on the outside, on the independent circuit. So the weird thing is, is that you had this huge history of painted comics leading up to when I kind of broke through in the mid-90s where I was doing stuff with the obviously commercial application of superheroes. But why did that not happen first? Why was it all the independent stuff that was using painted comics first? Why was that not something used in the mainstream? Yeah. And I well, just always was looking at those things thinking, I want to apply those skills like Bill was doing with Daredevil and Elektra. I want to apply it to the whole Marvel or DC universe. Well, you made it mainstream. I mean, does that sound reasonable? I mean, Marvel's, Marvel's that say. you pitched was, was a kind of homage to it. But it was so beautiful and powerful and uncontainable. Take in mind, like back in that period when I was starting the pitch for Marvels, at the same time as you had just had the sort of superhero revolution beginning in movies with Batman coming out. And it seemed like finally we got this film we've been waiting for for so long. Everybody wanted a Batman film since you had the wonderful Chris Reeves Superman movie 10 years before. So you get to this new reality where it seems like, okay, we're going to get a lot more of this stuff. But there was already the feeling that I had and looking at a lot of the other side projects that had happened where we're not going to get exactly what we want as fans translated exactly. Hollywood has shown us now they are going to reinterpret the yeah. living heck out of everything that we've loved from the page. That if it's a character wearing some skin-tight costume, now that's rubber. Or they change broad details of the content and so I thought this could be my shtick in a way of like I can give a direct translation of what I've read into life by using a study of life and realism with using live models with having a more realistic paint box um, I can give fellow readers like me that satisfaction of the stuff brought in a, a certain kind of life, in print at least, yeah. and not knowing whether or not Hollywood would ever kind of come around to sort of seeing it the same way as the readership had enjoyed it. You, you also did something, you convinced the reader that these people could walk the earth, that these <laughs> figures, that's when I first saw your work, I thought, oh, that's, yeah, it looks human to me. Like, th 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 these people could exist, and I think that's one of the great flags you planted. You mentioned Superman as a, you know, benchmark for you and a, and a kind of cultural benchmark, 1978, Chris Reeve. Do you recall first seeing it? Do you recall first hearing that it was a film? Like, oh, they're doing a film of Superman. Yeah, Moment I was eight years old and now it seems like I should have been, you know, somewhat like uh, 
you know, so young that, well, of course, you know, now here's a superhero movie. But even at eight years old, it was sort of like, geez, enough already. All right, finally, we're getting it. You know, like I was tired of waiting at eight, you know, because I knew, I knew the Batman show. Can you show. imagine like Alex at eight years old? <laughs> Where's yeah. Superman, Mom? A little bit higher there. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I knew that the Batman show was already something that existed before I was even born. And there's this wonderful thing that had come and gone, and like, we don't get anything else like that since then. Yeah. You know, so in 78, you were starting to see this stuff emerge. And of course, mentioning the Spider-Man thing on Electric Company, and then Wonder Woman had just come to television. Uh, so seeing them take Chris Reeve and casting so serious with this and putting everything on the page so accurately to screen was fantastic. So then you're thinking, okay, let's get more. I, I first saw the images in Time Magazine before I saw the film, and just, just looking at photos of Chris Reeve, and I was gonna sound bad, I'm like critiquing him, but my first thought was, oh wow, he looks young. Wow, he's a young looking Superman. I was used to the comic book pages, the Kurt Swan art and the Joe Schuster art. So to me, it was an adjustment to realize like, oh, okay, it's the beginning of Superman's story. He's not the 30-something or 40-something that I kind of envisioned him as being. But of course, you know, it's very easy to fall deeply in love with this version of the character because it was yeah. such a phenomenal performance and he brought so much to it. Juilliard trained actor is actually Robin Williams' roommate at Juilliard. But here's under the heading of be careful what you wish for. Some of the actors first up for the role of Superman were Al Pacino, uh, James Caan. Richard Dreyfuss. Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. Ali, yes. Muhammad Ali. Because back then, for some reason, they, when they were trying to find producers to get stuff started with these properties, you were stuck with people who were coming from way outside the Hollywood system who just had money, right. guys who wanted to make money, and they were getting properties like Superman and other things that, you know, they were coming to it with the sense of like, okay, well, what's hot? What, would, what made right. money yesterday? The only reason that Richard Donner got to direct this movie is that the movie The Omen he had directed was such a huge hit, they right. figured, well, get that guy, pay him. Well, it turned out Richard Donner knew what he was doing. He knew the character. Yeah. He had a respect for, this has to be done right. And it better not be Richard Dreyfuss doing it, you know? He, he knew, right. he had a better sense about what this needs to be. And yes, you can pack the movie with these name actors like Brando and Hackman playing supporting roles, but you've got to get this unknown because there is no one in yeah. Hollywood working at that time yeah. who matched the, the physical appearance. They didn't hire actors who looked like that anymore. James Caan all but did the role. He said the, the thing that he couldn't do was wear the suit. He said, I put the suit on. I said, I just can't wear that suit. Which is interesting about Chris Reeve because when they cast Chris, because as you say, strategically, they said, we need an unknown. They saw over 200 actors for this role. They cast Chris. Lynn Stallmaster, one of the great casting directors from the 70s, did all the Hal Ashby movies, great, really great eye for talent. He, he cast Chris, and the producers wanted to put a suit on him, a muscle suit. Mm. And it was Dick Donner who really fought against putting on some kind of plastic application. Talk a little bit about that, because I've heard you talk about, can we get back to simplicity in terms of costuming? What did you think of the choice of Chris Reeve physically in retrospect now? Do you think it was a successful addition to the comic canon? Oh yeah, he transformed yes. into the shape that was as close as he was able to achieve when he was, I don't know, 24 when he filmed this. Um, he, he got very bulked up with the help of David Prowse working out to build a bit more of a 
and actually from shots of them that they showed during the production of it, if you saw them without the costume, you would have been startled by how much muscle there was there. Yeah. But that, that color, adapting the costume exactly from the comics, you actually had a flattening out of his shape. You lost some of the work he put into himself. Yeah, yeah. But when they did initial shooting of him, test screenings, or test footage of him where he was wearing an early version of the suit, not only did he have enormous pit stains, but he also was incredibly skinny. And you thought, oh my gosh, wow, he really made an effort. Yeah. You hadn't seen that happen in the 40s with any of the guys that played superheroes back then in the movie right. serials. Nobody had ever bothered to remake themselves to become a part right. quite in the same way as Chris did. Right. And then, of course, now we've seen that in the last 20 years much more. People like Chris Evans and... Um, Christian Bale yeah. to play Batman. They just they go, go in there these... and then they build a whole new body yeah. out of themselves. It's yeah. an amazing thing when these guys do it's it. It's funny, Christian Bale put on, I don't know how many pounds to play Batman and lost all these pounds to play the character in The Machinist. Mm -hmm. And they said, what was easier to do? They said it was easier to lose weight than it is to gain weight. Mm -hmm. So for an actor to gain weight, you literally have to recalibrate your whole caloric intake. And everyone's thinking, yeah, shut up, dude. Um, but what fans in, uh, like me have always thought, though, is that it's nice when these actors can do this, and it's great, they, you need the skill of acting, but also there's people like Dwayne Johnson who has been working on building himself into being a monster for a long time, and there's... People like that exist, they play football. Why can't we hire some of them to play some of these characters? They exist, we'd like to see more of that. We've never seen somebody just taken who's got that physicality of the Superman bulk put right into the role. You know, they've been transforming thinner actors in remaking themselves to become bulkier to be Superman, but we've never just seen somebody that is already that. Would you have had any hesitation casting Bautista or Dwayne Johnson in terms of acting chops. Play producer for a second. As somebody like as Superman? Superman? Let's say Superman. It's, it's a hard call because there's such a specific thing that has to come across as Superman. It's almost like every other superhero character is flexible, but Superman, it's very subjective to your own perception. Whatever you feel about it, whatever you grew up being attached to, and it could be as simple as the actor needs to remind you of Chris Reeve because that's the only way you're going to see it. Yeah. I mean, now I have more of a thought of, since we have computer graphics, why don't we just bring him back to life and have some movies that he stars in that he's full CG brought back to life because that would be very charming. We did it in Rogue One. <laughs> yeah, well, not to the best of, but, but that's building still towards getting it even better. It will yeah. be better over time. Do you have to love the subject in order to draw it and paint it? Do you have to love the character? It's my preference, yeah. Because filmmakers talk about this a lot. I can't love a character, I can't film a character unless I love it. Well, the way I feel is that I'm, it takes me a long time, it takes me probably double the time of an average comic artist to do what I do because it's painted. And so given the time and then, you know, the emotional outpouring I put into everything, that, you know, that I, I, I want to make sure I'm invested. I don't want to drain myself of the enthusiasm that I've had for the last 30 years. So I always try and stick with properties that I've got a certain kind of identification of, or if it's something new to me, that I respond to it with a certain level of enthusiasm. I feel like, okay, I get that. I can like that new character, new concept. What is your way in? Is it intellectual? Well, let me give you a bad yeah. example. Let's say you're asked to draw Martian Manhunter, and you're not a huge, huge fan. Well, I'm not saying it is in this case, but what will be your way in? Will it be, oh, I like what the character stands for, or is it physical? Oh, I like the way the character's colored. Like, what 
is it sometimes it could be all those things right absolutely can it be the heroism of the mission of the character sure yeah but it, it's almost like we're supplying the reasons also of why I don't want to do certain things or characters because aesthetically I don't like a costume or I might not have liked a character because I felt like the attitude was one that I was either sickened of as a fan where like oh I'm so over and this guy or, it's so it's know. so funny to sorry to interrupt but it's the opposite thing we tell actors. We tell actors the, the cardinal rule of acting, don't judge the character. I'm not saying you're judging. Well, the thing is, I also figure I'm only going to be able to do so much artwork in my lifetime. I want it to all be stuff that I actually care about. I think you've you know? achieved that so far. I mean, you're my lifetime's over? No, that's my point. That's why I said so far. Do movies inspire you or do they kind of depress you? <laughs> they can do both. <laughs> you know, some I'll like and some I won't. Yeah. You know? Um, there's at least so much to pick from in this smorgasbord of excess superhero movies that you can have five pictures a year that you love the way they did it and ones where you wished that they hadn't done the picture, you know? <laughs> so, and that could be, you also realize we've had so many versions over time now that frankly, just give it some time. I don't know if I'll live long enough to see them do versions that might match exactly what I've wanted since I was a child, but I know that it's flexible and that nothing they do completely rewrites the history of the character. The character is still an icon that's beyond one single set of hands from wrecking. Thank goodness. 1999, mm -hmm. Matrix lands. Was it 99? 99. Oh, OK. When did you first see Matrix? Did you hear about it before you saw it? And when you saw it, what was your reaction? And why was it important to you? Well, the guys who created the Matrix, uh, Chicagoans, uh, the, which I didn't know them, but the uh, yeah. they worked with the same editor I worked with on Marvels. And so they uh, had gone off and made movies. And then they were now making this thing. They were trying to do comic book tie-ins to it. So I was contacted about one of those tie-ins, and so I knew about the movie's upcoming, I knew the, the general plot premise was that it was a false reality, uh, but I had no idea how much they were going to be transmitting their love of comic books and superheroes into this, and that it was a seditious kind of movie in a way, that the intent of the movie was to take the average American pub, or world public and get us interested and, and suck sucked into the world of superheroes in a way, that the concepts of breaking the boundaries of human ability and physical, uh, um, you know, having the characters fight the way they did and then ultimately flying the way they did. And so the movie was in its own way a kind of entry, even though it was never promoted as a superhero movie, it is one. By the end of the movie, when you see Keanu Reeves basically upon just does he walk out of a phone booth? Is that what he's actually in a phone booth? And then he yeah. Okay, so he walks out of a phone booth, and then we see from a high angle he flies up towards us. That was the way of almost saying he's bringing Chris Reeve back. He's bringing us this sense of you'll believe a man can fly, and that basically there was a cynicism that I think took hold in the '90s after the first superhero movies had kind of burst out of that post-Batman period which was that, you know, okay, superheroes are nice, but they're gonna be in their own reality. And they're not going to relate to the majority of us in terms of popular culture. They're a niche thing, you know? They can make a lot of money when these Batman movies came out. I mean, Warner Brothers only seemed to make Batman movies in the 90s, obviously. And Marvel couldn't get anything pulled together of their famous characters because they had made some bad deals. Um, so movies like this were paving the way we're beginning the sort of 
maturation of the concepts and slowly converting a world audience to appreciate what they hadn't really opened their minds to. Does it still hold up as a resonant work for you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a very solid film. Matrix begat the look that you then saw in X-Men with the whole leather costumes, and that, of course, is a year later, and, and then, you know, X-Men helped open up that door of like, okay, if these kind of superheroes can be taken seriously here without, without the sort of trappings of red, blue, and bright colors, if you can take the concept seriously, then maybe you can finally handle some straight superhero characters, which X-Men opens the door then eventually for Spider-Man and those successful movies and then all the rest of it. X-Men, uh, Matrix 1999, X-Men 2000, another movie in 2000, uh, Unbreakable. Yes. Why, why does this film stick in this dramaturgy of successfully pushing comics in motion in the same direction? Well, Unbreakable didn't, on the surface of it, scream, obviously, that this is a superhero metaphor, or, I mean, it's very literally the coming-of-age story for the superhero, and um, when they promoted initially, the scene was showing him being told he had just survived this horrific train crash, and he was the only survivor out of hundreds of people that had died, and just that little tweak was enough to signal to me and probably millions of others that, oh my gosh, did M. Night Shyamalan just make a superhero movie? And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. Uh, he did it with this kind of, I'm going to make this as real and as grounded as I can to make the fantasy that much more appreciable. And it was all about opening minds because I think in, to some degree what had happened is that we did have very closed minds culturally for accepting this stuff. Not comic readers, but the world as a whole, yeah, accepting yeah. the fantasy. So Hollywood had sort of shown its interpretation of the source material as being like, well, we don't take this that seriously, so we're not going to necessarily give you this fantasy in a way that is going to seem like it's meant to really compel you. Not the place we are now. My favorite scene is the paint can scene, but let's talk a little bit about where we are today. When Batman, when Chris, no, Christopher Nolan shot here in Chicago, took hold of the Bat franchise. What did you think of that entry into... Uh... Ultimately, that's what I was waiting for as a fan. I didn't want a fantasy world that Batman lived in. I wanted to see Batman in our world. I wanted to believe him. I wanted to believe him as a concept, even if it is beyond absurd that anybody does any kind of superheroing in reality. Part of the fantasy that we should be getting across to people is trying to convince you of its reality. Batman's standing on a building while the helicopter shot surrounds yeah. him. Yes. Yeah, that We're, beautiful shot is enough to make you feel like, wow, is this possible? Could this be real? 2005, the Bat Trilogy starts. 2008, Iron Man. I thought that, that was another meteor that hit. <laughs> when you, when you <laughs> think of when Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr., now we're hiring actors, news, you know, here's a concept, Christian Bale, people who can actually act. Yeah, yeah. What were you thinking when Iron Man struck? You know, the tone is changing, Marvel, a little tongue-in-cheek, tongue just enough tongue-in-cheek to make these populist movies. Right, I mean, the, the sense of humor that was applied to not just his movie, but I guess all the Marvel movies, has been the right kind of balance. It's sort of the porridge that's just right. There's not a sense of that their worlds are absurd, but there's a tongue-in-cheek nature to them recognizing their own 
absurdity in a way. And that was the success that Stan Lee had with his collaborators when he wrote that dialogue on top of all the work, putting this sense of like a little bit of, you know, wisecracking through this. They can tell straight stories, but understanding this is ridiculous. I'm wearing this costume. I'm doing this thing. It's and the Avengers kind of took it to 11. You know, there's a lot yeah. of quipping and a lot of the Avengers movies. But that can be like life. That doesn't, exactly. you know, life doesn't necessarily become gray and bland where everybody is so serious. Right, um, right, so, Zack Snyder, yes, yes. <laughs> well, actually, I was thinking in a way, like, when you take, say, Shyamalan's Unbreakable by itself, it's not a humorous movie. There's no. not any quipping going on it. And that's a certain form of relating the concept with a sense of gravity to it. But now we can get past that point and appreciate that, like, yeah, we can have a laugh with this stuff, too, and still take it seriously. We're at a different point. Now, now in a way, the, the thing I was going to make a broad statement that would be uh, grandiose with this stuff is that now we've got what might seem to a lot of people in the greater world of, like, an excess of superhero movies. Like, oh, my gosh, could they stop making so many superhero movies? And I proclaim to you that this is vengeance. Hollywood held this back for decades from happening. That we could have had movies like these going way back. Right after Superman came out in 78, you should have had a Batman movie within a couple of years of that. It took them 10, because they did not want that to get off the ground. You've had old attitudes that were holding this stuff back. So when it seems like it's too much now, realize forces kept this from happening. And those of us that love comic books know this stuff had this kind of play, this kind of range. We can all enjoy this on a broad spectrum of so many movies. And guess what? You don't have to go to any of them if you don't like them. You don't have to watch those TV shows if you don't like them. So I'm happy to have that mixed amongst the countless crime procedural shows and soap opera dramas of which they never complain, and we have too many soap operas. Like, no, we still, we have an endless number of that. L last question here. How are you going to get involved in this history? You're, you're an anthropologist of the I'm highest... I'm a footnote of this. No, but you know, the, the crude comparison, if you think of, you know, Indiana Jones as a teacher and a practitioner, you're someone who sees the larger picture, you, you're, you're sociologically astute, culturally in touch, but how are you going to, how do you, how do you, how can you keep this legacy improving? Do you want to get involved as a friend? They're not going to listen to me. <laughs> How do they you know, see you? These well, days, the, yeah. a lot of the directors and producers do reach out and do work with comic book talent occasionally. Unfortunately, the artist has the smallest role today in the mindset of a lot of the culture of both the way the comics are made as well as the way films are adapted. But that too can turn around. They're, you know, in the case of making the Iron Man movie, they reached out to the artist Adi Granoff, who had done not just a run of stories of uh, Iron Man, but also a huge number of covers and then the redesign of the armor. And so when they built that suit that we're ultimately still seeing them retool, they worked with a guy who knew the material, who was a reason that worked in comics, at least recently. And so that rarely has happened over the broad history of it, and it's happened more now in the last decade than it ever did before. Uh, doesn't mean that I'm going to be working on the behind the scenes of any movie anytime soon, but... Um, Is that by choice or by physics? They don't see any reason for what would I do for them, you know? I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to if you're going to adapt something that's similar to the way I approach it, a lot of that involves casting, not design of costume. 
You know, if you're going to do something and say it's influenced by my version of a character, that really does matter if I was involved somehow in picking the human being. And I don't think that that's ever something that's going to come to pass with my career path, but maybe if I'm involved in the next stage of evolution of the computer graphics, like we talked about, with bringing realistic performances to life out of whole cloth, building it from the computer up, you could make my version of Superman that is meant to look like the oldest version of Superman, you could bring that to life without worrying about whether or not you found the exact right actor. Uh, I always tell my film students, no matter what filmmakers we admire and love, when we leave the theater, we remember the, the actors and the characters. It's a character-driven, actor-driven medium. Why your work will live on is, it's, it's in your, that's in your work. It's a, it, these are the figures that inspire you. And I lo love that about your work. You're always in touch with that, and I think fans find identification in the, in the figures. You know, yes, there are interesting scenarios in this world and that world, but your work has always been true to the core and essence of the love of comics, which is Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, he, you know, straight on down the line. And, and you can't get rid of that. You'll always be a fan. Alex Ross, everybody. We'll see you again. Thank you, Chicago. Thank you so much. Thank you, ma'am. Thank, Thank you. you. Alex Ross, you know, he has that style. It's like a, um, it's like, you know, the superheroes immortals. He, he did this really cool thing when he worked for a ad agency in Chicago. He and his uh, co-ad execs would use each other's live models. So you'll see a lot in Alex's work, you know, the Joker looks like a human being. And I just thought this was really magnetic. And no one was doing this at the time. He was sort of the first to the space. But in comics, you can't kind of occupy the same space at the sa uh, twice, which is, you know, the space goes away. So Alex reserves that space, but he takes a lot of heat because of that as well. Speaking of heat, it's a beautiful day, and I'm going to go outside and run around. Um, you should, too, after you listen to this and, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, do your chores. We want to thank Alex Ross for being here with us today. We want to thank the city of Chicago, the Lake Effects Festival. Thank you for having us. It was really cool. We will be at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, May 10th, with Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. talking movies. We will be in Chicago at the Onion Comedy Festival, May 31st, talking movies with Christopher Guest. We're here every week, 2 p.m. on WHUP. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, MSF, Murmur, the social handles, murmurradio.com. See you soon.
A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you.